0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is
1: Believe.
2: Hello, Raider Nation, and welcome to another edition of the Believe and Raiders podcast and the Believe Podcast Network. You've got us in pleased to be joined by former Raider great Stanford Routes, Stan
1: Happy birthday
2: to you, my <laughs> friend. Uh, was one of your wishes for the Raiders to make the playoffs this year?
1: <laughs> yeah, that that was one of my wishes. Been a, been one of my wishes for the past several years. I think that uh, maybe they, they'll be able to go ahead and push through and uh, get over the hump, kind of like they did back in 2016. But it's all going to start with week one against Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens.
2: Well, it is indeed. You know, the Chiefs, they're seeking their sixth straight division title. Then you got prior to that, the Broncos won Five straight division titles in 2010. The Chiefs won the division. In the previous four years, the San Diego Chargers won the division. Last time the Raiders won the West. Last time they went to the Super Bowl 2002. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're into sports betting, Bet Online is where you should go to win money today. With the NBA Finals ending and the Major League Baseball headed to the second half of the season, there's plenty of action to get involved in. If you're a football better, there are tons of futures and props. You can wager on as well. BetOnline has all the latest odds, news, and information for all your online sports betting needs. Visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next tip-off, face-off, or pitch, head on over to BetOnline and start playing today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, on today's episode, we have a very special guest. He's covered the Raiders in Oakland. He's covered them in Los Angeles, and now he's in Las Vegas. Please welcome in ESPN Raiders reporter Paul Gutierrez, and welcome to the show, Paul. Good to have you back on. Gentlemen, thank you, Dennis. And
3: also, I covered Stanford Route, too, so I don't know if that's <laughs> if that makes me super old or just really old or whatever, but yeah, I mean... I uh, it's, it's, it's been an adventure. It's been a journey. And, uh, you know, Stanford will be the first to tell you, man, I mean, there's just something unique about the Raiders, whether you're playing for them, whether you're covering them, whether you're covering someone who played for them, it's, it's a, uh, there's 31 teams in the NFL. And then there's the Las Vegas Raiders of Oakland and Los Angeles and Oakland before that.
2: What was Stan like to cover? Stan was interesting because you could,
3: <laughs> and I know he's sitting right here and we're talking like he's that was cool. Stan was cool because you could go up to him and you could break down the game from a very analytical standpoint. Um, If you, you know, if you didn't understand a certain coverage and it looked like somebody got burned or somebody got beat or somebody did an Elvis toast Patterson impersonation. (laughs) Well, it really wasn't their fault because they were in some sort of coverage and and somebody didn't roll over the right way or something happened the wrong way. So it was always kind of cool to, to go talk to Stan um after after games win loss draw whatever it was because you get a different perspective and, and he was patient because obviously reporters that cover the game they're going to know the game up to a certain point but they've never you know I've never played in the NFL uh, I played at Barstow High School way back when and um it just to be able to talk to a player like that and to keep things in certain perspective it made, it made all the difference in the
1: world
2: so Stan, I saw you point your finger when Paul made a certain reference. Do you want to expand on that?
1: Yeah. 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 I'll definitely go ahead and, uh, expand on it. And I mean, Paul hit it right on the head. And the, the one thing that, that I learned from my years playing in the black and silver is, was it just kind of like what Paul would say is that for one, I'm pretty sure it's like this on a lot of other teams, but I probably felt like it was maybe a little bit more in Oakland, and I learned this from Charles Woodson and awesome Asamoah, guys like that mm-hmm. that would go ahead and kind of take me under their wing and kind of, you know, kind of give me hip to the game as far as like early on. And the one thing that I noticed was that in Oakland, you can go play good on defense and get beat on one play. And then all of a sudden, it seems like the world is going to come crashing down, things like that. And the one thing that I did learn is that just like what Paul said is that. The media, obviously, they're there to help you get your word out, get your message out to the fans, things like that. So it's a conduit that you definitely need. Now, as a player, it gets frustrating because if you have certain guys who, just like what Paul said, they know the game to a certain extent, they'll get to the point to where they just go ahead and speculate. So if it looks like this player got beat on this play or because he was the closest person in the, in the camera frame, then, you know, what? we're just going to go ahead and assume that, oh, yeah, you know, he's the one that got beat. And obviously, you know, from a player's standpoint, that's very frustrating because it's like, hey, man, like you know, you're throwing dirt <laughs> on my name. And everybody, everybody out there, the uh, the fans and everybody is reading this, thinking that it's you know, they thinking that it's gospel, thinking that that it's the Bible. So, me, obviously, I've always felt like I was a student of the game to a certain degree, and I felt like if I could go ahead and shed some light to a media. Uh, to a media member something like that i would always be happy to do it simply because number one it's going to help them number two i think from a player's perspective from a player's standpoint you don't want to just sit there and watch somebody else get dirt thrown on their name and you know it's not their fault hell even if it's dirt being thrown on my name and i don't want it because it wasn't my fault so i think that uh just from that aspect that was one thing that i learned about the media and it also right. helped me when i was playing i was like you know what i could see myself getting into broadcasting after the game is over with things like that so yeah that was definitely something that i learned from charles and from Namdi, just that aspect of dealing with the reporters and how it can be misconstrued. It can be misinterpreted. Things like that, and just try to go ahead and try to mend those uh, mend those bridges.
2: All right. Well, training camp has kicked off this week. Paul, you are there. Give us a couple storylines that you're going to be watching during camp.
3: Well, number one is, and then you, I mean, you always got to write about the quarterback, right? You can never write about the quarterback enough. Talk about the quarterback enough. And with Derek Carr, he's entering his fourth season with John Gruden, the fourth straight season in the same offense, coming off career highs and passing yarders pa- and passing yards uh, passer rating QBR. Um, should he take that next step? Is this really in with his contract situation, all the guaranteed money is paid out. It's all gone. Is this a do or die type of a situation for him now? Because, you know, he wants an extension. Uh, no doubt he he believes he deserves it. And, and, um, as I've always said about Derek, you know, the sense with Derek is that even if he's not Mr. Right, he's always been Mr. Right now. And when it comes to John and, and the way that he likes his quarterbacks, he, he prefers veterans. Well, now Derek, all of a sudden, look, he's 30 years old. He's the grizzled vet in the AFC West all of a sudden. Um, it, it's going to be interesting there to see exactly what kind of a leap he's going to take uh, going forward, especially with all the weapons around him that are supposed to, to mature as well with Josh Jacobs, Henry Ruggs, Darren Waller, who's an all-world tight end. But the one thing is that, and you hate to use this phrase, but there is kind of a built-in excuse for him in that they rebuilt that offensive line from scratch, really. So if things go sideways that way, well, he's got a built-in excuse. Not that Derek's ever used that. You know, to his credit, he's never really complained publicly about things like that.
1: Yeah, he's but not Russell
3: that Wilson. is still sitting there.
1: Go ahead, Stan. I just said, uh, like what uh, Paul was just saying about how Derek has never used that built-in excuse. I just said he's not like Russell Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Where did that come from, Stan? Hey, I mean, I just, I just threw that in there. He's not like Russell Wilson. <laughs> All right, so what – Let me ask
2: you this, uh, because obviously Russell's been rumored, you know, one of the teams he said he wanted to go to the Raiders. So let me ask you guys this, and Stan, I'll start with you. I believe Derek's got two years left on his deal. So in, let's just say, I'll say three years. So in three years, Stan, is Derek Carr the starting quarterback of the Raiders?
1: Oh, for the Las Vegas Raiders in three years, I would say if the Raiders do not make a serious push this year, and I mean where they're 10 and 7, 11-6, 11-6, and six, where they are going to the playoffs and actually doing something in the playoffs. Doesn't I mean they got to go to AFC title game, but actually doing something in the playoffs, showing that, you know what, we're here to actually compete with the Baltimore's, the Kansas City's, the Buffalo's, the Pittsburgh's, the Cleveland's. I'm not certain that in three years he'll be the, uh, the starting quarterback. And I'll go and I'll say this, and then I'll turn it over to Paul where I think that, in matter of fact, Paul, you can go ahead and touch on this and tell me if I'm right or wrong on this. Obviously, we know Derek Carr is much maligned in the media, the fans, things like that, for not being able to get the Raiders over the hump. And they're not wrong on that. He has not got them over the hump yet. But when you look at other quarterbacks around the league who don't even come close to getting their team over the hump, it seems that their job security is more intact. It seems like their job security is more its more on solid ground than it is for Derek Carr, who seems like every year is trying to fight for his respect. But I think that if you're going to go and make a move and get rid of Derek Carr and go get another quarterback, unless it is Russell Wilson, who's staying in Seattle, unless it is Aaron Rodgers, who's staying in Green Bay, unless it's Pat Mahomes, who we know is Stan City, or it is Tom Brady, who we know is going to probably finish out his career in Tampa Bay, or number four out of Houston, Texas, Deshaun Watson, unless it's one of those guys, I would say you better be definitively sure that you know you're getting an upgrade, not a, well, you know, this guy, oh yeah, and Josh Allen as well, forgot about him, outside of those guys I just named. If you're not getting somebody who you definitively know is an upgrade, as definitively as you know Thursday comes after Wednesday, that type of definitive, you might as well just go ahead and dance with the girl who bought you to the party, because then you're getting into what ifs. You're getting into that arbitrary. Well, you know, in this offense over here last year, he did such and such, and this is what we're projecting him to do when such and such. I think that you're just you're getting into the guessing game. But outside of the Rodgers, the the uh, the Brady, the Deshaun Watson, the Josh Allen, the Russell Wilson, those guys, the Pat Mahomes—I just think that you're really just you're literally in Las Vegas at the crab table and you're just putting all your money on black. <laughs> what do you think, Paul? Yeah.
3: Uh, well, I think Wesley Snipes said it in Passenger 57: "Always bet on black." So uh, <laughs> you know that's my reference. <laughs> but but it, it does come down to this with 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 Derek and, and with this as my backdrop is that. John, John Gruden is more afraid of starting over with somebody else at this stage than he is actually in love with Derek. And yet, what's not to like about Derek in term, when he's putting up these stats? There's a lot of things where he, you know maybe he checks down a little too much or, or he doesn't extend plays enough with his legs. And, and I agree wholeheartedly with you, Stan. Unless you've got something where you think it's an upgrade, um, just stand pat and see what happens. But there's somebody that's also that you didn't mention that's on this roster right now that flashed. And when I asked John yesterday about just the vibe of camp, he mentioned this guy out of, on his own, Marcus Mariota. Remember, oh, what yeah. Marcus mm-hmm. does when he's, when he's right, his skill set actually fits what John wants to do on offense better than what Derek does. Yes, it so does. So it's, it it's kind of a nice problem to have. But what you're saying also I, I fully agree with is that, you know, if, if the Raiders don't make noise this year, then it might be time to just to, to check it out and see what else, uh, you know, somebody like a Mariota can do because you got him under under contract. You got him under control. Derek, if you were to part ways with him right now, it would be a very minimal salary cap hit. Like I said, all the guaranteed money is paid out. Not saying they do that, not even advocating they do that, but it is interesting to keep. That's why, to me, it's the number one uh, storyline for the Raiders heading into the season. All right, let's move Fair on, true.
2: fellas. And we actually have a question from Twitter, and it comes from Coach T. He wants to know how the wide receiver position and the secondary positions are going to play out and who are going to be the starters week one against the Baltimore Ravens. So, Paul, let me start with you.
3: Why don't we hit the wide uh, receiver
2: position first, and then we'll go to the secondary afterwards.
3: Yeah, I think rugs they're, they're putting Rugs in a position to succeed. They want him really to, to to flourish. And they're pumping him up by saying, you know, despite last year's, you know, kind of not really good stats for being the number one receiver taken that they didn't expect much out of him in that, in that fashion anyway, last year. So they're really setting him up to succeed. I think you keep an eye on, on Brian Edwards to get a lot of snaps and a lot of balls thrown his way. Um, But it's, it's, it's smoke. It's uh, Zay Jones. It's the veteran guys that they brought in uh, John Brown to, to really help and, and take that role on that, uh, Nelson Aguilar had last year, being that big play veteran-type receiver. So the, the, that, that position there is going to be kind of a, a cavalcade of guys, I think. And then, you know, Mr. Third Down, uh, Savior, uh, Hunter Infro, that's, that's Derek's guy on third down. And then, you know, your tight end, you got, like I said, one of the, the best tight ends in the world in, in Darren Waller. So, he, again, a lot of weapons, but it all depends upon how much Derek actually trusts these guys to give them those 50-50 balls.
1: Stan, what do you think? I think it's spot on you got obviously rugs you draft him number one overall 12 I'm sorry 12 overall first round draft pick even though he had a little bit of a down year compared to where he should be yet assuming where his draft status is obviously they're going to want to make sure they get him going. Where, what I would want to ask Paul is who's going to take on the Tyrell Williams big strong physical receiver can go up there and, and get the other uh, tough catches who's going to go ahead and take away I'm sorry take on that role that the Las Vegas Raiders had that needs to be filled now, because you look at the, I think it was uh, Zay Jones, you look at, uh, yeah. who's the other guy It's smoke, John Brown, yeah. obviously John Brown. Renfro in the slot. You don't really have that big type of guy Tyrell Williams type that came over from the San Diego slash Los Angeles chargers all in all, it'll probably be more by committee than anything. Right. And just like I was telling you Dennis last week, how, I remember playing against the San Diego Chargers before Vincent Jackson and Malcolm Floyd really got going. Antonio Gates was their number one target. And for Kansas City, obviously, they have Tariq Hill. He's your big play guy. But throughout the game, on most downs, Pat Mahomes is really looking at Travis Kelsey first before he looks at anybody. Obviously, we know Tariq Hill, Cheetah, he's always catching the deep ball. He's scoring all the touchdowns of 50 yards or more and things like that. But I think when uh, Pat Mahomes is dropping back, he's probably looking at... Travis Kelsey first or definitely second on his list. So I think you're probably going to see more of just by committee this year at the receiver position and not someone who's going to flash and give you 1,200 receiving yards, something like that. I think they would love to have that out of Henry Ruggs, and I would love to see that. But I think you're probably more so looking at having an offense that is led in receiving by the tight end this year.
3: Yeah, and that's exactly what happened last year with Darren Waller. I mean, he he breaks Tim Brown's franchise record for most catches in a season. Yeah, he goes triple digits in catches. Uh, but to answer your question, who who are they hoping for? Who are they counting on? That's Brian Edwards.
2: Let me ask you this, Paul. Do you see a situation in which they put Waller out at wide receiver, perhaps a little bit more, even a, a Kenyon Drake at wide receiver, and then we see Foster Moreau more so than we saw him last year at tight end?
3: Uh, Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think you're gonna see a lot of things. And, and and that's the thing was that Gruden is in the lab right now looking at all these weapons that he has. And and you know, it, it comes down to again the trust factor that Derek has. Derek spoke to the media uh first day of camp today and and he said he really can't afford to have a favorite receiver. He'd like for all of them to have a hundred catches, but obviously there's not enough balls to, to go around that way. Uh and of course his his favorite is gonna be Darren Waller, but for this offense to work. It's very tight end friendly. It's very running back friendly coming out of the, the backfield and catching passes out in the flat and making things happen um, in space. But yeah, there's going to be a lot of packages, a lot of things. The one thing that I really want to see and that you didn't see much of at all last year is Henry Ruggs catching slant passes and taking off a lot Tim Brown back in the day.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we talked about that quite a bit last week and I even hammered on it last year. He's got to get, more involved in the offense, especially earlier. I remember Mari Cooper, and I was telling Stanford this, yep. Bill Musgrave, when he was the offensive coordinator, Mari Cooper's rookie year, he, he ran oh, all yeah. those wide receiver screens with him. He ran him on reverses. Yeah. And I thought that got Mari involved in the offense early, and it just led to bigger things for him. And I'd like to see that sure. with
1: Ruggs. In fact, you know what, Paul? I got a quick question for you. Would you obviously working for ESPN, being around the league, knowing everybody, and talking to teams, things like that. We all know John Gruden left the Oakland Raiders, then went to Tampa Bay, smashed the Oakland Raiders in 2002 Super Bowl. We all (laughs) remember that. And then John Gruden is with Tampa Bay. I believe his last game was 2008. We beat them to end the season in 2008. And then he went to the booth. And even when he was in the booth, he did the Gruden's quarterback camp, things like that. So John Gruden has universally always been kind of thought of as the quarterback whisperer. Right. And so what I'm asking you is for how the, Now Las Vegas Raiders have not been able to get back over the hump, get back into the playoffs since the 2016 season, back when Jack Del Rio was the head coach. At what point does it start to get looked at from now John Gruden's standpoint of, okay, can he be the person to get the job done? He's got the 10 year contract worth hundred million. Right. At what point does the lights now get shined towards him? Not just Derek Carr of, okay, you're the quarterback whisperer. You're always been doing the quarterback camps, things like that back when you're working for ESPN. Well, maybe you can't reach Derek Carr. Maybe you can't lead this team. So is there any, Is there? am I speaking any true when I say at some point that does come into question based on what we've all learned about John Gruden and how he's always been tabbed as a quarterback whisperer, kind of like a Kyle Shanahan or a Boy Wonder down there in Los Angeles, Sean McVay.
3: Yeah, and and I mean, it's it's kind of a two-part two, two part question, right? I mean, when, when does the seat get hot under John? Yeah. Well, with his contract situation, with how Mark Davis went on the journey to try to get him, um, it's not going to be anytime soon. Now, if mm-hmm. they fade again for a third year in a row, Yeah, I do know that Mark Davis got a little frustrated last year, specifically with that Miami loss, uh, you know, questioning some of the things that were happening uh, coaching wise. But league wide. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are already questioning and wondering what exactly is going on. Has the game passed John Gruden by, Uh, you know, is he just kind of a TV star who, uh, you know, doesn't really know how the league is anymore? That's all going to come get louder the longer the Raiders go without getting in the playoffs. And, and mm-hmm. the worst scenario, I guess, for him right now is the AFC West is loaded. Uh, yes. The Raiders did do some things to improve, but again, offensively, they rebuilt their offensive line. Defensively, they, they've rebuilt that thing from scratch. So, again, built-in excuses, but at the same time, um, they realize the clock is ticking too.
2: All right, gentlemen, let's move over to the other side of the football now and talk about that secondary. We know the Raiders drafted Trayvon Merrick with their – and the first, I beg your pardon, in the second round, they also added Casey Hayward Jr. at cornerback. So, how do we see the secondary playing
3: out? Uh, Stanford route, Fabian Washington. <laughs> <Nandy after all. laughs> Is Namdi in and that sh- mix? Where's Namdi? <laughs> Namdi, I'm going to move Namdi back to free safety, and Steve Schweiger going to be my strong safety. Wow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Great one. Oh, wow. That was a good
3: one. <laughs> Oh, yeah man. And, uh, yeah oh. trevon Morrig is going to be the starting free safety uh john abram they're going to put in the box and let him kind of you know do better with with what his skill set is kind of uh hunt and and, and you know scavenge and, and look and just try to land blows on people hayward's going to be one of the cornerbacks and and trevon mullen be the other cornerback um in the slot look for hobbs the the rookie pick this year they, he, they were really really high on him throughout otas and And mini camp, and of course, we've seen one practice today, didn't really see much of anything. But uh, it's going to be interesting um, to see that because in one breath, John Gruden, in his pre-training camp press conference, said that uh, safety is totally undecided. And he kind of dumped all over the secondary because it's all a work in progress. And in the next breath, said how excited he was about it because it is starting from scratch. and, And they've got so many young guys and athletes and that he, you know, I think his exact quote was, um, the secondary is going to be worth the price of admission. And if it's not, then they haven't done their jobs over the past few years.
1: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think that you're going to see, obviously, Mulrig, rig second round draft pick out of TCU. I would agree. You've got to move Jonathan Abrams more to the box. I still remember last year, Sunday night football, they're about to be Kansas city sweep them throughout the year. And then Jonathan Abrams comes up from his free safety position, up on yeah. uh Pat Mahomes. They throw it over his head, big play, obviously. And I think that Abrams has always been someone who he's clearly a hitter. So you need to put him closer to the box. That's where he's gonna be more comfortable at. And then I'm right there with you, uh Paul. I would go with Trayvon Mullen. You got to have Casey Hayward somewhere within that nucleus of the cornerback position coming over from the Los Angeles Chargers. And I think that he still has plenty left in the tank and he can. Teach the young guys. He can get them up to speed. Gus Bradley, obviously going to be the defense coordinator. We know that he was one of the original architects of the Legion of Boom for the Seattle Seahawks. And simply... Being able to put them in position where it's very simple. Even like back in my day, we played a lot of man coverage. Very simple. You got that guy. I got that guy. You got that guy. It's very, very simple. Well, obviously Gus Bradley, he's going to be running a lot of that cover three, some quarters. They don't. Re- I don't even think that Seattle, in when the, when they were in their heyday, even ran cover two. It was mainly just cover three, quarters, a little bit of man coverage. What made Richard Sherman so famous and well known, along with Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor, Byron Maxwell. I can go all the way down the list. I think that that to me was the biggest component last year. I remember the Thursday night game, Marcus Mariota was the starter. Well, not the starter, but he filled in for Derek Carr. And they lost in that game to the Los Angeles Chargers Thursday night game. The following Saturday night game to the Miami Dolphins. Uh, on Saturday night football and then there was another game and then obviously the Kansas City game on on Sunday night football and there was another game that they that they lost due to a lot of blunders in the secondary. I think to me, as long as Gus Bradley can just simply get those guys in position and simplify it, you will not have as many bonehead big plays <laughs> that are given up by the secondary. Now somebody gets moss, somebody get, you know, they jump over you, they catch the ball. That's one thing. That's a physical error, but seeing how many guys were running wide open, scot free, that to me, hopefully Gus Bradley is going to be able to go ahead and get that ironed out with Paul Gunther. Couldn't
2: Paul, one name that I didn't hear you or Stan mention was Damon Arnett. So where does he kind of fit into this equation?
3: Yeah. I see you're
1: cringing.
2: You're cringing.
3: This was a first round
2: pick last year and he's only in his second season.
3: That's why, because he's a first round pick and, and he was a, a, an opening day starter last year and just kind of played his way out of the role. And and, and again, it's not his fault they took him in the first round, right? I mean, he's got the attributes, the physicality. Um, to me, Stan, I don't know, from from my perspective of covering the NFL for a while now, it, it was shocking to me his lack of form on tackling. And he was always hurting himself by leading with his head. And, and you know, Quarterbacks aren't, yeah.
1: Oh, go ahead. Ben, ben, Bench,
3: what you're saying. No, I was going to say, and cornerbacks aren't supposed to be hitters or anything, but when you got to make a tackle, you got to make a tackle. And Absolutely. Arnett just seemed like he was knocking himself out of games more than anything. And when he wasn't knocking himself out of games, Abram was knocking his teammates out of games <laughs> because he was <laughs> such a head hitter and he's heat seeking <laughs> missile. So he's got, you know, during OTAs in mini camp, Arnett was doing a lot of watching, a lot of standing around and watching that, you know, not a slam on him whatsoever, Uh, I guess the positive way to look at that was he was doing a lot of learning. And I'll leave it at that. Mm.
1: And, Paul, you can go ahead and I I actually want to get your opinion on what I'm about to say. And I've told this to Dennis before, so I'll say it again. When you look at certain positions within the NFL, you know, certain positions obviously are more important than others. Corner, rush end, left tackle, quarterback. Those are the top four most important positions right now in the NFL in terms of the draft. And when you think of schools like Ohio State, they have an embarrassment of riches, of talent at every position. And then the fact that they play in the Big 10, they're guaranteed to win 10 games out of the year just off of the fact that they're an SEC school that's in the Midwest, as far as the talent disparity of them versus the Iowas, the Penn States, the Michigan States, the Michigans, the Indiana, the Rutgers, uh, all of those types of schools. And what I'm basically saying is, Whenever you have a school that is, has a pipeline at a certain position, you have Denzel Ward coming out for uh, that year with Marshawn Lattimore. I, I forget who was, uh, it was Gary and Connolly was the second corner right, from right, Ohio right. state that year. Well, guess what? Last year we had, we had a Jeff Okuda and then we have Damon Arnett. Whenever you have a surplus, whenever you have a bevy, a pipeline of certain players in a certain position coming out of a certain school, To me, it's really, really hard to truly evaluate them because when you're playing at Ohio State, you're playing with a Chase Young down there defensive end, you got another first round corner on the other side, you probably got a first or second round safety back there as well. And then you got other high draft picks around the entire team, much like a Mac Jones, much like a Justin Fields, people like that. So whenever Damon Arnett is out there on the field. He doesn't have to cover for any more than, what, maybe two and a half seconds because that pass rush is getting to the quarterback so quickly, they don't have time to throw. He's going against receivers who won't be playing on Sundays. Big Ten isn't known for producing receivers or anything like that. That's power run game. That's running backs, offensive line, D-line, linebackers. It's all about the trenches in the Big Ten. So it's difficult to evaluate them because they're playing on a team where they just simply, as long as they tied their shoes the right way, they'll (laughs) win by 20 points. So tell me, am I way off when I say that versus, maybe having some sort of validity to it because then when you go, you draft a guy like that in the first round and exactly what's happening right now, he's doing a lot of watching in camp. It seems like he's kind of fallen out of the lineup and now people are wondering, well, Hey, this guy, we drafted this guy, number 20 overall. Why is he not starting for us? Why is he not already pushing to go to the pro bowl next year? Something like that.
3: Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely something to it. And to your point, it is interesting because Mike Mayock, when he first got the job as Raiders GM, he went and scouted that national championship game at Levi's Stadium between Clemson and Alabama, and made a joke that he could make a living if he drafted nothing but players for those two teams for the next three years. Well, guess what? He's drafted like seven or eight guys from Clemson and Alabama, probably for that same mentality you're talking about—that these guys are already they're, they're they're pros because not only are they pros with the pro talent, pro pro skill set themselves, but they're playing against other pros. So that's something to keep an eye on when, when you're drafting guys that are coming from smaller conferences and didn't really compete against um, other pros, so to speak. Yeah, that's something to keep an eye on. And, and I guess, you know, I, I guess you can kind of flip the question. And again, it's a generation or two ago for you. But I mean, you know, you coming out of a school in Houston, I mean, you had the talent, obviously, to be a high pick in the NFL. But Houston at that time wasn't really known as a as a factory for cornerbacks and things like that. So, I mean, I think there's two sides of that coin. And I think you're absolutely right.
2: All right, gents, let's move on. And next weekend is the Pro Football Hall of Fame induction and a pair of Raiders will be inducted into Canton. That's Charles Woodson and Tom Flores. Stan, let me begin with you. You played with Charles for one year in 2005. Any stories that you can share
1: with us about him? oh wow uh i heard (laughs) i have several stories that i can share with you about charles woodson maybe not on air okay right but i can go ahead and think (laughs) of a couple uh I remember when I first met Charles Woodson, I was a rookie, and I was just, you know, blown away just simply that, oh my God, this is Charles Woodson, Heisman Trophy winner in college, Michigan, Wolverine, played offense, defense, kick returner, things like that. I remember I got there, I believe Wood was in year eight, I think he, and Wood went to the Pro Bowl his first four years in the league. And then obviously went on to Green Bay, had finished off his Hall of Fame career back with the Oakland Raiders, things like that. Won the Super Bowl, defense player of the year. So we all know Charles is just phenomenal. I remember that Charles would, at the time, this is at the time, because there was so much turmoil between him and the organization, in a lot of ways, he already knew that I'm not going to be here next year. And you could already kind of sense that, just with his – overall demeanor while he was at practice and things like that. But even with him simply already being mentally checked out at the time, he would still go out there and practice and he would break on balls just seemingly just off of instinct, not off of studying film or anything like that, always had the quickness. But I think that Charles's instinctual play was always fascinating to me. It was because he could play outside, he could play inside, he could play at safety. And Charles could go out there and just mentally beat you in the game of football. And you look at certain guys who may be really fast, they may be really strong, they may be really quick, they may be really tall, something like that. It seemed that he always knew what was about to happen. And that was the most fascinating thing to me. And then watching him in Green Bay, I remember while he was in Green Bay, one of their coaches, Became one of our, DB, our defensive back coaches, Lionel Washington. Called him speedy. He used to play for the Oakland Raiders way sure. back in the day. I'm sorry, the, yep. the Los Angeles Raiders. And right. I remember he always told me, "Sit said, Stan, he said in Green Bay, we let Charles be exactly who he was. We let him be exactly who we wanted to be. And every week, we would give him one play to hang his hat on. And that if the offense comes out in this formation, and they run this play, and you see it, go get it. If you mess up, they double move you, I'll clear it with the head coach. But if they get in this formation that we've been seeing on film all week, go get it. And if you mess up, if they double move you, if it winds up being a different play, something like that, I'll clear it with the coach. But all in all, his approach to the game, especially when he was in Green Bay, because I still used to watch him very, very closely uh, after he left Oakland, it was how he galvanized the team. I remember how they played in the Super Bowl against the Pittsburgh Steelers 2010. And that's when he hurt his collarbone. And much of the game, he's on the sideline in a sling in street clothes. And he still was being a captain out there on the field just from the sideline. And it seemed like everybody still gravitated to him. So I think he's obviously one of the best players in NFL history, no doubt about it. But I also think one of the best leaders because I watched him from a distance. And I tried to learn from him from a distance even when he was no longer in our locker room. Paul, you obviously covered him for several years. What
2: made him so unique and so different?
3: It's funny. I don't want to scoop myself because I'm writing a big story on, on Charles next week, too. But when you look at Charles, there's three distinct and separate chapters to his life, obviously, right? It's the first run with the Raiders, the run with the Packers, the run with the return to the Raiders. And the best way to put it is when his first run with the Raiders, he had a Hall of Fame talent. He goes to Green Bay, he becomes a Hall of Famer. He comes back to Oakland. He becomes an absolute legend for Raider Nation. And he was a different guy. And I asked Charles this specifically. And he said, you know, when when he was first with the Raiders, you know, he's a high draft pick. He's getting money. He's young. He's unattached. He's going to go out and have fun. He told me himself the exact quote was that uh, he went just as hard off the field as he did on it. (laughs) And uh, we know how hard he went in in each capacity. He goes to Green Bay, and and he was kind of crestfallen because he thought there was going to be people jumping all over themselves trying to sign him. And it was only Green Bay. So he, he he took a shot to the ego there. And then he went there. And like you said, Stan, they let him be who he wanted to be. And that, that that's how they got him there. and played Defensive player of the year, Super Bowl champ. They didn't have a lot of success as a team um, at that point. But, but you definitely saw that he was a different man. He was more mature. I talked to Lincoln Kennedy. I wrote a book with Lincoln. And he said to see Charles as the first-round draft pick in 98 to the elder statesman when he returned in 2013, And from Lincoln's perspective as a player and now as a radio guy for the team, it was night and day. It was two different guys who had matured so much and his play didn't suffer much as a result of him changing either.
2: I know he said he lost the love of the game and that's why he retired from a talent standpoint though. Do you think he could have played maybe
3: another year or two, Paul? Uh, He was starting to get beat up a little bit and he acknowledged that too. And I don't know if he ever really lost the love of the game, but, but the game was getting faster too. And, and, and he talked about this. He said, you know, when his first run with the Raiders was like going 75 miles an hour, his second one with the Raiders, he was going 35 miles an hour. So I don't know if he was talking about what he was doing <laughs> off the field or if the game was getting faster or he was getting slower, but he might've had another year with him. And, and I do remember in 26, so his last year was 15, 2016, the Raiders are really good. Uh, and I, I was standing in line next to Charles on the flight back from Mexico city, when they went down there and beat, the Houston Texans in that, uh, primetime game. And, and Charles said, man, you know, he would have liked to have been a part of that, but the body and and the mind told him no more. Stan,
2: what type of interaction did you have with Tom Flores when uh, he was a broadcaster with the Raiders?
1: Oh, I didn't really have that many, that many interactions with him at all. I remember him mostly just because I believe first Hispanic coach to win the Super Bowl in NFL history as a head coach. Obviously, going in the Hall of Fame, and all of this, you know, was told to me by my father. I was taught this growing up about Tom Flores, Mm -hmm. this historical head coach for the Oakland Raiders. And so, that's really the the majority of what I know about him. I think I may have had one interaction with him, if I can recall. But I think uh, historically, and what he's meant for the Oakland Raiders, but just for the NFL as a whole, being the first uh, Hispanic head coach to ever win the title— to me, I think that, you know, just speaks volumes in it's about time that he got elected because I think he should have been elected a long time ago.
2: Yeah, we all agree on that. I remember after John Madden announced his retirement, Al Davis was going to choose between Ollie Spencer and Tom Flores. And I, I don't remember, you know, I didn't know who either one of them was, but obviously he made <laughs> the right choice and going with Flores. And Paul, you wrote an absolutely wonderful article recently on Tom Flores. What was the gist of that column about?
3: It was basically, you know, I've, I've written and I've been pounding the drum for Tom to get in the Hall of Fame for a decade plus. And when it finally happened, I'm like, OK, what do I write about now? It's kind of like you get to the finish line. It's like, what's next? So, you know, skull session brainstorming with my editor and we're trying to figure out, OK, well, let's let's talk to other a small but growing uh, legion of Latino coaches in college football. Uh, by our count, there are seven Latino head coaches in, in college football three of whom are in the mountain West at Boise state, UNLV in New Mexico. And I, I just wanted to find out from their perspective Now, granted I'm older than all these guys. So, and, and you now I was 17 when, when Tom coached his last game for the LA for the LA Raiders in 87. Uh, so these guys are a lot younger when Tom was winning super bowls, if they were even born yet, but it was the same thing. Like you just said, Stan, they, the, the stories were, were told down from, from their fathers and their mothers and, mm-hmm. And what it meant to see somebody with with a last name that looked like theirs, or or somebody who looked like them, and somebody that actually was them. Um, and and it was just a, a really labor of love for me to be able to write the story and talk to these guys because it all made sense, you know. And 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 Danny Gonzalez, who was the head coach at the University of New Mexico, uh, he had told me a story, and I led the story. The the, the my column with it was that. When he was a young kid growing up, he had a, he had a cousin named Casey Flores, and, and they used to always joke with each other because the Raiders were winning. And, oh, that's your uncle up there. Oh, he's your cousin. You know, they're all trying to claim him. And then when Tom Flores finally got elected to the Hall of Fame back in February, Danny couldn't call his cousin because his cousin passed away in 2013. So he did the next thing he could. He called Casey's mother and said, hey, I know Casey's up there smiling right now looking down because our uncle got in the Hall of Fame. And they're not related at all, but that's that's what it meant. And and beyond being the first Latino, first Hispanic, the first minority coach to win a Super Bowl. And he did it twice. Uh, the first yep. Latino quarterback in pro football history, the first minority general manager up in Seattle. And and Dennis, I know you know we've talked about this before, but a lot of the voters held out over his head what happened in Seattle. And because, you know, when from 1980 through 85, there wasn't a hotter I mean, everybody talks about Bill Walsh and the titles. and stuff. I mean, Tom Flores was right there with those guys because they were winning titles. They were dominating. They were winning divisions and, and doing things. So he was a pioneer. He was a trailblazer. I couldn't be happier for him. Um, and it's just really cool to be able to see and, and say that, you know, not having a part in it, so to speak, but being along for the ride and, and talking to him. and And he allowed me to break the news back in February that he was going in the Hall of Fame. So I was able to tweet it out before anybody else got it. And that was kind of like a little reward, so to speak, but it it was, it really felt good because again, he looks like one of my grandfathers. He sounds like one of my grandfathers, you know, and, and uh, what really blew my mind was the very first time I ever met him. Um, I was 18 years old, just graduated high school, coming back from Hawaii on our senior trip. And we're at LAX and waiting for my luggage to come around the carousel. And I see all these Raider bags and I was a huge Raider fan as a kid all these Raider duffel bags come flying by and I look and and I see Flores and I look up and there's Tom standing right next to me. So I remind him of that story. He doesn't remember. I'm sure he was in first class flying back and forth to Hawaii anyway, but it blew my mind that I'm the same age today that Tom was on that day when he was a retired coach of the Raiders before going to Seattle.
2: Yeah. You mentioned his time with the Seahawks. He finished 20 games under 500 with them. And then Paul, you and I kind of talking about this also before we started recording the podcast, I wonder how much it hurt him following John Madden as coach of the Oakland Raiders. And then back then also, you know, Al Davis was the owner and the perception was always Al was the coach as well. And we all know, guys, perception is reality. So, Paul, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, it's it's no doubt it was held against him. Uh, the, the Madden thing and the hangover there and, and the, the Al Davis casting the huge shadow, that definitely played a part. What you got to do is look back at stories from that time. Uh, and, and, but, but Tom never thumped his chest. He never said, Hey, wait a minute, this is my show. I'm running. John never did that either, but he had such a big personality that people weren't really questioning that. Then John went on and became a mega star, uh, with his video games and, and being on, on uh, TV as well. Um, and then when he goes to Seattle, that was held over him mightily by other voters. John Clayton, who's on the selection committee told me himself. And he said it himself, uh, that, that those years should not be held against him. Because it was the worst ownership group in the history of the NFL, according Agreed. to John Clayton, who, by the way, was covering that team. So he might know a little something about it. Um, again, he was one of the louder voices in the room. I'm not in the room. I'm not a voter for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, but to hear the case be presented and to have so many people find say, eh, you know what? OK, let's do it again. It's you can haggle about why did it take so long? But you know what? It's here. He's here to enjoy it. I just texted with him the other day. He said he's got to pace himself this week because his family is really really excited i'm sure he's even more so good for oh. him man good for him all
2: right little story time for us and now stan i'm not sure if you're aware of this but paul is a very proud UNLV alum and <laughs> okay. the other day on twitter a friend of mine he's a washington football team fan and he messages me and says look and i still can't watch the marcus allen touchdown run in the super bowl and i said you know what i get it i understand i said you know what i still can't watch the tuck play and then paul responds by saying he can't watch the 1991 Final Four game between UNLV and Duke. And, Paul, I'll let you take it away from there and tell the rest of the story.
3: Yeah, it's it's about Greg Anthony's phantom fifth foul. When he fouls, out, remember the Rebels are undefeated. <laughs> the defending national champs. They're starting to pull away from Duke late. There's a bogus charge call on Greg Anthony. He fouls out. Duke runs away. It should have been an and one. And then UNLV runs away and wins that game. Then they blow out Kansas. They win back-to-back championships. Tark's too powerful to topple in UNLV in Vegas, and the Rebels go on to become a blue-blooded. We're talking 30 years ago now, Stan. This is a long time ago.
1: Oh, no, I remember. But,
3: yeah, but to hardcore UNLV-run Rebel fans, Greg Anthony's Phantom Fifth Foul is the same to Raider Nation as the Tuck Rule is, in that it created this alternate timeline. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if you guys watch Marvel – marvel on disney plus but loki all these different timelines you know, these nexus events happen that to me the tuck rule and greg anthony fouling out are one and the same as a raider fan as a rebel fan from way back when
2: Again, Dan, do you have any games or any plays growing up in the houston area that uh you know you can't really watch or even as a player that you're like you know what that didn't happen i, I i'm erasing that from the memory bank
1: oh man let me think i got i want to hear, hear a five sl- Oh yeah I want to
3: hear I, a fight, slam a jama
1: i was just about to go there i was just about to go there as a former coup uh that's something that uh that obviously i remember another one when uh the houston oilers blew the 35 to 3 lead again at the half to the eventual afc champion buffalo bills that's one one that i was involved in uh we lost the division in 2011 to tim tebow that still bothers me to this day we Shouldn't have done that. We went one and four in December after going seven and four, the first three months of the season. Uh, Another game that I just can't watch. Oh man. I would probably say growing up in Texas, especially growing up in Austin. I grew up learning to always hate the Dallas Cowboys. That's number one. (laughs) The 49ers were my favorite team growing up. I can say that now because I'm no longer wearing a black and silver uniform. And I remember the Super Bowl against – it was the Pittsburgh Steelers versus the Dallas Cowboys in the 95 season.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I believe the game was out there in Tempe, Arizona, It was, I think. correct. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Neil O'Donnell threw two INTs to Larry Brown. That's one game that was probably very difficult for me to watch because even though I was a 49ers fan growing up, I still liked the Steelers as well. And just seeing him throw those two INTs, that game I still remember to this day. And Larry
3: Brown got paid by Al Davis. I
2: yeah, he did. Exactly. Yeah, he did.
1: He did. So true. Larry yes, Brown, uh,
2: Desmond Howard, who was MVP of the Super Bowl, he got paid by Al Davis. Mm-hmm. Man, you were an MVP of the Super Bowl. Al was going to pay you <laughs> if you were a free agent.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Very true.
2: Just back up the armored car. Al was coming out with the cash for you. Fellas, this was great mm-hmm. stuff. Hey, Paul, uh, from people who want to follow you on Twitter, can you give us your Twitter handle?
3: Yeah, at P Gutierrez ESPN P G U T I E R R E Z ESPN.
2: Any articles you want to promote coming up? People can look forward. Yeah, to? I mean,
3: the like I said, the, the Tom Flores article was was it was fun to do that because I just sat down and just stream of consciousness and then went back and started putting in the stats to back up the context of it and everything. And then uh, next week, uh, Charles Woodson's story. It's it's just like I described. It's it's a, it's a three part act really, and I write the first part. Uh, our guy, Rob Demoski, who covered him for the Packers, he writes the second part and then I'll write the third part. Cause I covered him the third time. And, and that's, you know, for me, I, I've got that. And then I've got the book coming out with Lincoln Kennedy. If these walls could talk, uh, that, that comes out September 14th. Mm, um, I'm, I'm sure, I'll, I'm sure I'll be pimping that thing all over social media as well, but that was fun because it's written in, you know, it's, it's my voice and Lincoln's voice. And I get to go back and talk about um, the first Raider game I covered in Oakland was you were there stand as a rookie. It was against the Chargers uh, in 2005 when Randy Moss went across the middle, went up, came down, hurt his groin, and decided he didn't want to play anymore. <laughs> <Raiders>
2: <laughs> I
1: remember at that, that point. game. I remember that yeah. game. I remember.
3: Yep. So that was my first game there. And then obviously being here and getting a personalized tour of Allegiant Stadium from Mark Davis for ESPN last year. So it's, it's something that's always kind of been in my blood. Um, you know, I was a Raider fan as a kid growing up. Um, not so. Can't say I'm a fan now, but I do root for stories, and uh, there's always a story going on with the Raiders.
2: Definitely got to do it. Hey, thanks so much for joining us, Paul. It was great stuff as always. Really appreciate it.
1: Yes, sir. Thank Guys, you thanks for having me. me. Loved having Thank you. you.
2: All right, Raider Nation, that's going to do it for another edition of the Believe in Raiders podcast, presented by BetOnline.ag for our guest Paul Gutierrez my partner Stanford Red. I'm Dennis Ackerman. Thanks so much for listening. And may all your punts find the coffin.